In November of 1994, I was privileged to lead a team from our church to Santorin, Brazil, to serve with Project Amazon, a church planting mission on the Amazon River. Their ambitious goal is to plant 100,000 churches in the largely unreached Amazon River Basin. That week, we spent uh, a week, uh, seven days on a medical boat that traversed one of the large tributaries, the Tapajos River, where we visited technically villages that had no evangelical witness. This is a picture of what one of those medical boats would have looked like. The nurses on board would offer crisis medical care to villagers through the day. We would mingle with people in the villages or in the surrounding area. And then we would show the Jesus film in Portuguese in the evenings. We slept on hammocks on the top of the boat under the open sky with the monkeys and the birds from the rainforest chattering. We ate what was put before us, melons, fresh fish, um, and roots and manioc, as you can see here in this picture. Uh, the, the kitchens were crude, nearly stone age like. That's the kitchen of many, uh, like what a village hut would look like. If you're a fond uh, of using your culinary skills, you can see you would have to take a step backwards there to actually uh, fully employ the kitchen. It's an adventure that I'll, I'll certainly never forget. Challenged my Western, white, middle-class, boring Christianity worldview. It uh, um, caused me to experience God moving very powerfully among a group of people that had a spirit-inspired vision with actually very few resources, extending God's love and power to really unreached people. And it became lifelong friends with the people, uh, the, the teammates that I had. Now, what about you? What's the most memorable adventure in your years to date? I think that all of us are born with a God-given capacity for adventure. We dream, we imagine what is possible. That's why as children, we're prone to play and create and make-believe. I mean, kids can do anything, right? As we grow older, we tame and throttle the spirit of adventure. We uh, we kind of tone it down, but, but it's still there in all of us, in various amounts and in various forms. It's what prompts us to create and tinker and draw or read or have a hobby paint or collect or start a new business or build a new house or take a new job or go back to school or or go on a roller coaster. Today we are launching our church's second 40-day adventure. The theme this year is following the radical Jesus. We're entering a season of growth and change in order to more fully follow Jesus as his disciples. It coincides with the historic observation of Lent and will culminate on Easter Sunday. Now, last year's 40-day adventure was a high-water mark for many people in our church family. Some fasted for the very first time in their entire life. Some received new jobs. Others experienced answers to prayer in some small and some dramatic ways. It was a real time of growth together as a church family, and we're trusting for even um, more this year from God. So let's pray together as we begin. 
Lord, at the start of this brand new week, we bow our heads and hearts and we just pray the prayer you taught us to pray. Uh, Our Father in heaven, we bless your name. We bless your name for the fullness of salvation that comes through Christ's death and resurrection. We bless your name for the spirit that lives within us. We bless your name for soundness of mind and health of body. We bless your name for freedom from the curse of the law and your blessing in our life. And we thank you, Lord. We honor your name for the security that's in Christ against an uncertain future. And then we continue the prayer, Lord. Bring your kingdom. May your kingdom come right here, right now, even as it's done in heaven. And not just in this room and in our lives, but right next door in Vineyard Kids. And Lord, really through our communities where your word is proclaimed and the Holy Spirit is honored today, bring your kingdom. It's our prayer in your name. Amen. I grew up in a very conservative church tradition and never heard the word Lent. I always thought it was a little weird that my neighbors, the Dooley brothers, who were good Catholics, gave up lifesavers and candy for Lent. I couldn't figure out why. I didn't know what that was about. Why would you give up such good stuff? But over the years, I've come to understand that we observe uh, Lent in many churches uh, and, and, and around the world, Lent is celebrated as people prepare for Easter. It's a 40-day period of identification with Jesus in his humility, his suffering, grief, and death. And then it concludes with a celebration of his resurrection on Easter Sunday. Now, I'm, I'm not at all about the ritual and tradition that accompanies Lent in high church. I like low church, low, low, low church, keeping it simple, practical, powerful, and fun. But nevertheless, I appreciate Lent as an annual occasion, not unlike spring cleaning, when we find a season to clear out stuff that interferes with our relationship with God. An annual rhythm of revisiting the scraping of the barnacles off the hull of our life. And so our 40-day adventure will coincide with an observation of Lent. Now, various traditions around the globe count the 40 days of Lent slightly differently. But in most cases, the seven Sundays of this period are not counted as part of the 40 because we celebrate each day of worship at the start of the week as a mini Easter. And so you you get a day off from your fast, as it were. But if you begin your 40-day adventure this coming Ash Wednesday, the 13th of February, then you'll spend 40 days on your adventure, excluding Sundays, concluding with Easter morning on the 31st of March. Parenthetically, that the ashes that many traditions uh, will mark the foreheads of their uh, parishioners with this coming Wednesday often come from the uh, burned, dried palm branches from the previous year's celebration on Palm Sunday. Just, just throw that out there as a, you know, tidbit in case you Protestants didn't have a clue why your friends from traditional uh, upbringings have ash marks on their forehead. Now, at one time, my wife Tina and I uh, had season tickets for University of Illinois basketball at the assembly hall. 
And this is no exaggeration. There was a gal at the end of our row, C-section, row nine, that uh, would chant certain phrases loud enough that we could hear. And they were accompanied by certain rocking motions. She would do this through the entire game, actually believing that they influenced the outcome. Uh, it's clear that they weren't working this year until Thursday night, you know, when we beat Indiana. All right. Knocking off the number one team in the nation. Now, I am not a superstitious person, nor do I embrace magical thinking as this gal did. And nor do I believe that rituals, practices, or certain behaviors influence the events of uh, the outcome of certain events. But I do recognize that certain numbers are very biblically significant. And 40 is one such prominent number. Forty days and nights of rain in the great flood of Noah, Genesis 7. Forty days and nights that Moses spent on, on the mountain in the presence of God on two occasions, Exodus 24 and 34. Forty days of scouting the promised land, followed by 40 years of the Hebrew people wandering in the wilderness, Numbers 14. Forty-year reigns of Kings David and Solomon, 2 Samuel 5, 1 Kings 11. Forty days and nights that the prophet Elijah spent fleeing from Jezebel, 1 Kings 19. Forty days of repentance that the reluctant prophet Jonah offered to the city of Nineveh, Jonah 3. Jesus' 40 days of fasting and temptation in the wilderness to prepare for his ministry, Luke 4. Tradition holds that Jesus was in the tomb for 40 hours, parts of three days, and then there were 40 days of post-resurrection appearances by Jesus, Acts 1. Now, I don't know all the ramifications of the number 40, but it is certainly significant in God's economy, and I think it warrants our cooperation. I'd like to read just one illustration in the Bible of of the significance of 40. It's the occasion I mentioned in Exodus 24 in, in Moses's life, Exodus 24, verse nine. Then Moses, Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, and the 70 elders of Israel climbed up the mountain again. There they saw the God of Israel. Under his feet, there seemed to be a surface of brilliant blue lapis lazuli, as clear as the sky itself. And though these nobles of Israel gazed upon God, he did not destroy them. In fact, they ate a covenant meal, eating and drinking in his presence. Then the Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain. Stay there and I'll give you the tablets of stone on which I've inscribed the instructions and commands so that you can teach the people. So Moses and his assistant Joshua set out and Moses climbed the mountain of God. And the glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it for six days. And on the seventh day, the Lord called to Moses from inside the cloud to the Israelites at the foot of the mountain. The glory of the Lord appeared at the summit like a consuming fire. And then Moses disappeared into the cloud as he climbed higher up on the mountain, and he remained on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. Now, is that incredible or not? Climbing the mountain. Ascending the hill of the Lord is used as a prophetic metaphor through the Bible as a, as a, a, a picture, a word picture of approaching God. Moses and the elders actually encountered the manifest presence of God on the mountain. And they ate a meal 
with him. It's a sign of friendship and fellowship, no doubt life-changing. Now, what we're expecting in our 40-day adventure is what we'll unpack this morning. These 40 days represent a time of more intensely seeking after Jesus. Now, I understand that as disciples of Jesus and perhaps as a seeker, a a, a pre-Christian, if if you're one, uh, not yet maybe considering yourself a disciple or even on the journey, we're all seeking after Jesus. But this time represents a special occasion of uh, focused attention and activity, kind of a a going up on the mountain, spending time in the presence of the Lord kind of a season for the next six and a half weeks. You know, anything, we don't have to travel anywhere. We don't have to go to a certain destination. We, we don't have to spend any extra money. We don't have to wear special clothing, buy any special equipment to go on this adventure. We can all come just as we are, and we get to do it together as a church family. Now, our expectations in our 40-day adventure are rooted in three cornerstone prayers. The first is for ourselves and our family that will actually experience Jesus in a more personal and powerful way. Like you, I, I want to draw closer to him. I want to hear his voice. I want to to receive specific answers to the prayers that I'm praying. I want to see breakthroughs in my life. Uh, his power and his mercy, his love and his truth, breaking into my life in ways that I'm longing. And no doubt you you have those as, as well. So prayers for ourselves and our family. Secondly, for our friends, that the Holy Spirit would touch our friends. Now, let me introduce to you, if I if I could this morning, the concept of my five friends. It's a simple tool that nudges us forward to living a more outward focused life. Research tells us that between 75 and 90% of the people who choose to follow Jesus do so because they were impacted by a significant relationship with a genuine Christ follower. As opposed to, for instance, reading a book or attending an event, a seminar or a concert, hearing a sermon, watching a Christian television program. And so... Cultivating a relationship with my five friends who do not yet know Jesus or who are at this time currently unchurched is is um, part of what this season in Lent, this this uh, 40-day adventure can can be about. I, I intentionally commit to praying for my five friends. For your my five friends list, I would suggest that you identify five, if you can find them, or at least three people in your three worlds, where you work, where you live, and the people with whom you do life and interact with, your spheres of influence, your three spheres of influence, for whom it's not likely that anyone else is actually praying for them to experience the kingdom of God breaking into their lives. So ask God to to reveal to you the names or who they are, three, but preferably five people on your my five friends list for whom it's not likely that anyone else is actually praying for them. And then in this six and a half weeks that we spend, ask the Holy Spirit to give you specific instruction about how to invest in their life, how to include them in your life, and perhaps even invite them to be a part of something you're doing in the next uh, adventure. So 
First cornerstone prayer for yourselves and your family. Second cornerstone prayer for our five friends. Thirdly, for our church and our community. That God's kingdom would come to our church family and the communities in which we live. Peoria, Peoria Heights, Dunlap, Morton, East Peoria, Chillicothe, Pekin, uh, Washington, Germantown Hills, uh, Catlin, Galva, Hudson, and our podcast communities as well. Madison, Athens, and Denver, and Lompoc, and Champaign-Urbana, and Gifford, and others. So, for instance, as I'm praying starting this week, I want to see uh, our church family influence the unreached, unchurched people of our community, and and actually that God would use us to touch the men and women of influence, those people who operate in strategic sets of relationships in these communities, people for whom God has a destiny to reach so that they can reach their extended network. I'm praying for God's power and love to, to be upon our outreaches in all these communities, but particularly in this 40 days, that that when we reach out to share God's love and power, that there'd be anointing and effect. I'm also praying that God would raise up leaders in our church family. And um, those are just three of the prayers that I'm praying, for instance, for our church family and our community. So they're, they, these are the three cornerstone prayers in our 40-day adventure for ourselves, my five friends, our church family, and community. Now, our 40-day adventure will be accompanied by a study through the entire gospel of Mark, all 16 chapters, in order that we might more fully understand what does it mean to follow Jesus. So if I were to ask you, what did Jesus come to do? And we would open it up and pass the mic around this morning. Some of us might answer, well, to seek and save the lost, or to create the church, or to show us the way to heaven, or to provide moral and ethical instruction, or to do the will of God the Father who sent him. And while there are elements of truth in each of these answers, none is complete enough. We believe that the larger story of the Bible shows that Jesus came to bring the real life of God's kingdom to the earth. For instance, in Mark's gospel, the first chapter, Jesus said, the time promised by God has come at last. The kingdom of God is near. Repent of your sins and believe the good news. Now, Dr. Luke records the inauguration of Jesus's ministry with these words in Luke 4.18. The Spirit, Jesus speaking, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to bring good news, the gospel, to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that captives will be released, that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free, and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. So God's good news, otherwise called the gospel, is that the kingdom of God has come. Uh, and it means that sins are forgiven and that sicknesses are healed. Captives will be released from their 
slavery in whatever form it manifests. The oppressed are set free. The time of God's favor, the long-awaited season of God's favor and restoration of all things, the year of Jubilee in the Old Testament uh, covenant, it's finally here. The long-awaited renewal of all things, the future age to come, when, uh, when God's favor will be restored, the, kind, the time that was prophesied by the prophets, Jesus is saying, it's now here in the middle of this present evil age. It's finally arrived. Jesus was the beginning of the restoration of all things, the coming of the kingdom of God. And this news was radical. Now, in a measure, it is, it is true and safe to say that Jesus came to seek and save the lost, to build his church, to provide moral and ethical instruction, and to do the will of him that sent him. And so you, 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 you get credit if that's the answers you were thinking to the question. But at the most fundamental level, Jesus was a revolutionary. He turned the conventions of society and religion upside down. He violated the popular and religious notions, the ways of doing things. He reinterpreted the scriptures and people's expectations on how they would be fulfilled. He called for a radical new way of living that reflected the coming of the kingdom of God on the earth. He proclaimed and demonstrated he would tell and show what life under the rule of God, the reign of God, the kingdom of God, should be like. It's as if to say, Jesus would say, if you really love God and you really love one another, then here's how your life will look. Here's how you'll treat one another. Here's are the the things that you will value and prioritize. Here's what your communal shared life together will actually be like. And so in many ways, Jesus came not just tweaking historic Judaism at the margins, bolting onto the side a, a few new moral or ethical ideals. He completely reinvented everything. I love how N.T. Wright, a New Testament scholar and author, says in his book, The Original Jesus, The Life and Vision of a Revolutionary. He describes it this way. Jesus was staging something that would look to us much more like a political rally. He was like someone drumming up support for a new movement, a great cause. He was calling his hearers, quite simply, to a new way of being Israel, a new way of being God's people to the world. According to the Bible, the creator God chose Abraham and his family, the ancestors of Israel, as his means of addressing and solving the problem of the whole world. Israel was called to be a people with a purpose, the people through whom God would eventually use to put the world to right. Israel was called to be the light of the world, the salt of the earth. They were proud of their city, Jerusalem, set on a hill in Judea. And Jesus is saying, follow me, and we can actually make that happen. Follow me, and you will be the light of the world, the salt of the earth. He was calling and challenging his contemporaries to be the people of God in a radically new way. Jesus was a radical revolutionary. 
right now around the world, there, there are a number of revolutions taking place. No doubt you're aware of this. In Egypt, uh, after two years uh, uh, of the revolution in 2011, when protesters from a variety of socioeconomic and religious backgrounds demanded and then later received the overthrow of the regime of Egyptian President Hos, uh, Hosni Mubarak, now, two years later, Protesters are frustrated with the regime of Mohammed Morsi and the Muslim Brotherhood, and they are now demanding yet another change. The Syrian uprising is an ongoing armed conflict in Syria between the forces that are loyal to the Syrian Ba'ath Party from the government and those seeking to overthrow it. And you all know that in the last three weeks, a French-led offensive against insurgents in Mali created untold civilian deaths and airstrikes and led to ethnic reprisals against the Malian troop invasion. All over the world, right now, there are revolutions going on. Overthrows of rulers or political systems, they're engaging right now at a great cost of life and property, civil structure, and uh, stability in, in society. Survivors often end up as refugees without food or water or basic necessities as they're displaced to to other countries. The infrastructure of countries remains in shambles for potentially decades to come. Jesus's revolution is also a dramatic change in ideas and values and practices, but it's a peaceful revolution. And it blesses all the wrong people. It blesses the sinner, the weak, the broken, the poor, the marginalized, the hungry, the merciful, the peacemakers. He's got it all upside down. Such is life in his kingdom. Jesus said his revolutionary kingdom message was not popular and may even bring division within one's own family. It's not easy, but it is accessible to everyone. It requires commitment, but has eternal and tangible benefit. Love for hate, forgiveness for sin and hurt and offense, justice for injustice, healing for sickness, provision for lack, honor for disregard, Respect for oppression, humility for pride, gentleness for rudeness, patience for impatience, blessing for anger, inclusion for marginalization. And then he fills us with his very personal, powerful presence through the Holy Spirit to make it possible for each of us as his followers to experience it right here, right now. You see, Jesus' life is not just a teaser for what real life is going to be like when we get to heaven. I mean, what's the point if we can't experience it here and now, right? If we can't say, if we can't experience what Jesus said was ours to have in this life, in this time. Jesus' revolution produces fruit that is real, that is concrete, that is practical, that is daily. It's not like false or ethereal or cosmic or otherworldly or just spiritual. It's real. 
it has an effect in where we live and work and play and go to school and eat and shop. That's what we're going to be pressing into discovering and experiencing in the next 40 days in our adventure. As we look in the Gospel of Mark, where the Holy Spirit gives us a collection of stories about uh, what the real life of God's kingdom is actually supposed to look like as we follow the radical Jesus. Now, we're going to be reading two chapters a week in the Gospel of Mark. And uh, then we'll uh, get together on Sunday, and I'll share some insights from what we've read. So we'll read the two chapters in anticipation of our gathering together on Sunday morning. And I, I would just you know suggest that you pray that the Holy Spirit would break the anesthesia of familiarity. You know, we've kind of, oh, I read through the Gospels. You know what it's like? You kind of like, yeah, I know the drill. I've read these chapters before. Maybe for some of you it'll be a first time, but if you've been a Christ follower any length of time, we've we've likely read the Gospel of Mark because it's the shortest one. (laughs) So pray that God gives you fresh eyes and fresh heart. And don't don't read more than like, than like the the time allows, so you can spend time soaking in the two chapters. Now it is true that the last week we'll read three chapters, fourteen, fifteen, and sixteen, because they contain the whole of the Easter story. But what this would mean is that for next Sunday, in anticipation of our time together, next Sunday, February seventeenth, you start this re- this week by reading Mark chapters one and two, and that's it. And then maybe reread Mark 1 and 2. And then you reread it again, chapter 2 and then 1. Okay, just like asking the Holy Spirit to like um, break off from you the shackles of familiarity where we just get in a rut. You know what a rut is? A rut is a grave with the ends kicked out. You're just like dead in there, you know. So we want to like break the power of a rut, reading scripture, you know, like just because it's boring and routine. Now, if you're prone to read other parts of the scripture because you're doing the one-year Bible, that's great too. But but focus for the next 40 days on on Mark in two weeks at a time. There are two chapters per week at a time. Now, lastly, I'm going to suggest that our 40-day adventure be accompanied by some sort of fasting. Historically, Christians have taken up fasting during Lent. And I, I know that most of you, like me, want to avoid the subject of fasting. We don't even like the sound of the word, do we? And as I've dug down to the root, I've, I've introspected, I've prayed, I, I, I've dug underneath all of my excuses, and I, I've actually discovered the, the real reason that I avoid the subject of fasting. It's because I like food. <laughs> I like food. I like to socialize around it. I like to prepare it. I like to serve it. I like to eat it. I like how it makes me feel. Unlike most of you. So just don't be messing with me and my food, you know. But I'm going to. Now, the Bible actually has a lot to say about fasting. And Jesus, in Matthew's Gospel, the sixth chapter, verses 16 to 18, actually makes an assumption, or seems to make an assumption, that fasting is a part of Christian devotion, and he promises us a reward when we practice it. Matthew 6, 16. And when you fast, 
Don't make it obvious, as the hypocrites do. They try to look miserable and disheveled so people will admire them for their fasting. I tell you the truth, that's the only reward they'll ever get. But when you fast, comb your hair, wash your face, take a shower, put on your deodorant. And and then no one will notice that you're fasting except your father who knows what you do in private. And your father who sees everything will reward you. Now that is a promise printed in red. That's Jesus to you. So, what about fasting? Fasting simply refers to abstaining from food for a spiritual purpose. A normal fast is abstaining from solid food for a specific length of time. Might be 24 hours, three days, a week. Could be as long as 40 days. Drinking only liquids, juice, or water. Now, we're not talking about taking a sirloin steak or a red velvet cake smoothie in your food processor and drinking it. That doesn't count, Steve. <laughs> no solid foods, only liquids for a specific period of time. The Bible also indicates a partial fast where we omit or limit certain foods or activities. Daniel and his three friends apparently only ate fresh vegetables and drank water. John the baptizer refused to eat any fruit from the vine or to drink a fermented beverage. So you may alter your diet uh, or omit a meal for a season. In this sense, a partial fast might mean you skip breakfast or lunch or go without dinner one or two or three days a week. God may call you to give up a particular food group, caffeine, sugar, carbs, meat, or something else. But you could also fast certain activities. Uh, For instance, uh, the book of 1 Corinthians in the New Testament indicates that a married couple may refrain from sexual intimacy for a season uh, in order to seek uh, the face of God. You could unplug the television or give up cable, stop playing video games. You may fast Facebook or email or shopping, or credit cards, or the internet, or sports, or music. Some of you may want to just switch your phone off for a day or two. Ask the Holy Spirit. I've got a long list. I'm not going to share them with you because it would set some artificial benchmark. But ask the Holy Spirit what he's he's asking you to do. And then be courageous enough to actually listen and do it. With his help. Now, why would we fast during our 40 day adventure? I mean, don't we want this to be a fun and positive experience? (laughs) Well, to be sure we do. And one of the very ways that you can strengthen the possibility of your adventure being meaningful and positive is to undergird it with fasting. Because it's a way that we demonstrate humility. We submit ourselves uh, to the Lord. We express our dependence upon him. We seek a breakthrough. from God in answer to prayer, specifically regarding freedom from a habitual sin or addiction or habit or compulsion, receiving God's wisdom and direction about an important decision in our life or our family, getting the help we need in a relationship or at work or in school or with your health or or experiencing uh, a relief from anxiety or worry or depression or fear or some other grip that the enemy has in your life. It's just been my experience that more than any other spiritual discipline, fasting reveals the things that control me 
and keep me from growth, no matter how I've practiced it in whatever fashion, full and partial in length of time, fasting quickly reveals how how powerfully my appetites control me. I mean, when you set your heart to fast, you never imagine how powerful one little Girl Scout cookie can be. <laughs> and we just bought eight boxes worth. <laughs> Those things scream at you from the cupboard. Eat me, eat me, eat me. And my human fleshly cravings and desires are like a raging river that always has a tendency to overflow its banks and then muddy up my life. Fasting is a way to keep those things in their proper channel. Bottom line, it's this. I think Jesus, what he wants me to experience in fasting is this. Ben, I want you to hunger for me and my purposes in your life as much as you are hungering for that food and that thing from which you're abstaining. That's the bottom line. Now, it is wrong for any of us to think that we can manipulate God in our 40-day adventure. You know, we might be thinking, well, you know, if I fast for a certain length of time or in a certain way, then, then, you know, somehow I'm going to impress God and get from him what I want. Friends, I got news for you. God is not impressible. <laughs> He's not. No amount of religious activity or church attendance or prayer or fasting or Bible reading or sacrifice is going to wrestle from the hand of God something you want. We should never think that anything we do is going to move the will of God. The purpose of fasting is not to bend God's will. It's to bend our will into submission to the hand of God. But when we do, he promises us a blessing. That's the neat thing. It's God's promise is that when we bend our will in submission to his, our father who sees all things will reward us. And so Jesus appeals to our carnality, our sense of desire for a reward and says, if you, then I. If you, then I. So undergird your 40-day adventure with fasting as the Holy Spirit directs. So. Ready for an adventure? I am. I'd like to invite you this week to prepare by asking the Holy Spirit to give you your three prayers, your three cornerstone prayers, to indicate what, if anything, he's asking you to fast. Women who are expecting, those of you with medical conditions where fasting is not allowed under doctor's orders, you know, all things accepted. Ask the Holy Spirit how he wants you to fast. And then thirdly, let's ask for grace to begin reading through the Gospel of Mark so that we might more fully follow the radical Jesus. Now, it may not quite be like boating on the Amazon River, but it may be the life, the the right of your life. So, Lord, we, we do just pause to say thank you for, like, inviting us in, into this experience of preparation for the celebration of Easter. And, Lord, I, I pray that our church family could, could experience everything you design in these days. Prepare us even now, Lord, as we celebrate. Let us hear your voice and experience your grace to say yes to you. And now, Lord, as we receive these gifts of love, I pray that you'd put your power and blessing on them. Bless those who are giving of the, their resources, Lord, stewarding it for your sake of your kingdom, We pray blessings upon those who would desire to give, but, Lord, don't have the resources. Return blessing, as you said, as you promised, that if we give, it will be given back to us, good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. In your name, amen.